Welcome to the Queer SLP, a podcast for the LGBTQ plus professional. Join two chatty speech language pathologists as we deep dive into queer culture, evidence-based research, and work-related issues. The Queer SLP's mission is to establish a sense of community, discuss informative content, and provide a space for other proud professionals to share their stories. Hello, and welcome to the Queer SLP. We're back. <laughs> we're back and we're doing more things and stuff. I'm thinking before we jump into the episode, a check-in is always welcome. So let's check in. What's going on with you, Natalie? Well, the school year has started for me. Mm. <laughs> and <laughs> yes. And I have all new kids, all new classroom. I'm at a different location than I was last school year. And my commute is a little bit longer. So I'm actually recording from my mom's house because I'm staying the night with her because it makes the commute shorter. So sometimes I'm going to be staying with my mom. And so that's nice. We have a nice time together and chat. Good. I'm sure she loves it. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to spend time with the mom. How about you? What's up with you? I would say same thing as far as, you know, school starting, navigating that show. <laughs> there could <laughs> be a word in front of that. The, show. <laughs> the bleep show. <laughs> right. A- insert any adjective you'd like to describe what kind of show it is. But just trying to figure out how to do therapy, how to follow guidelines. It's crazy out there. Yeah. I don't know how any of us are doing this. You know, none of us want to be remote again or virtual, but I just don't know how we're going to do this for the whole year. Well, you know, I was talking to our school psychologist today and she reminded me that we're still experiencing trauma now. Right. Like it's not over. And so we need to just kind of be able to roll with things and remember that we're still in the middle of a trauma. Right. Which was a good reminder for me because sometimes I'm hard on myself. Oh, for sure. Because I think one of the big things that we were all tested with is, you know, figuring out a, I'm going to change the phrasing, but life work balance instead of work life balance. Oh, I like that. Yeah. So prioritizing life first. And then the trick, though, is as with any professional field, you have a lot of expectations placed upon you. And so you're kind of forced to ignore trauma, you know, to which is to, just so <laughs> horrible. Yeah, it's bullshit. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, no. And, and so I think for not just me as a individual and professional who likes to hold themselves to a high standard with my work ethic, but just trying to also hold space for our students, clients, you know, patients, whatever, and recognize or at least try to recognize what that looks like when it comes to how it presents communication wise. I'm trying to figure that out still too, like recognizing, yes, this is still trauma. And also, oh, it's presenting like a communication disorder. (laughs) So what do I do with that? To treat or not to treat? That is the question. Well, and I'm curious to see how many kids end up with communication disorders because of the lack of intervention or, you know, just the lack of being in school. Like how many kids are going to fall behind that maybe weren't behind in the past? Well, it's so crazy to think about how some of these babies you know like if you think about like three-year-olds more than half of their life has been this and so any sort of standardized test that we have 
is no longer standardized. No, no. <laughs> uh, at least for this population. So I'm wondering more and more, all of these, like, you know, not to knock type A, but all of these, you know, very strict guidelines that we tend to follow in order to, to find eligibility or we give a lot of time for things. On the flip side, for those who need more time to say opportunity or trauma, but if we're all going through trauma, how do you decide who is a true, and I'm using air quotes here, language disorder or delay versus trauma and when do you intervene? Yeah, versus trauma and lack of experience. Right. Because, yeah, those preschoolers have spent half their lives in this. Right. And so it's it'll be an interesting. Uh, there's no precedent, right? Yes. Yeah, there's none, at least that are like where research was taken. I'm sure way back when polio and <laughs> measles and <laughs> you name uh, it. I don't even know what the field was a thing back then, but you know. Was it? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, at least not to the degree that we were trying to be conscious of those factors. Right. And so anyway, that's kind of where I'm at now. Other than that, you know, ready for fall, you know. Oh, I love fall. I do too. Oh my gosh, it's starting to come here and yes. I'm so excited. I want to wear my sweatshirts. I want to bundle up. I want to buy my pumpkins. Yes. Yes. I love <laughs> I'm so weird. I love pumpkins and I love making jack-o'-lanterns. Uh, I love everything fall. It's also my birthday season. So that's yes, another reason month, why. Right? Yeah, yeah. Big yeah. old 34. Ooh, ah. <laughs> I'm in I'm in my <laughs> mid 30s officially so uh, I love my 30s though so I'm not even yeah. like upset about any you know change that's happening that's kind of where things are shall we talk about our guest so yeah we have a wonderful wonderful guest in store for all of you today Natalie why don't you introduce them we have our first international SLP so his name is Niall, and he's from Perth, Australia. Mm -hmm. And um, Niall reached out to us and wanted to talk to us about what it's like being an SLP in Australia, what it's like being a queer SLP in Australia, and all about that and all about him. So Niall is our first international proud professional. I think for me, not just Niall, but like other proud professionals that we've interviewed but I'm constantly reminded of is how open and honest he was with us. I think that that just that helps everyone to learn and grow. It was so great. Yeah, I loved it. What What about you? What did you think? I think it's always a treasure when we get to have a non-binary SLP on the yes. podcast. Niall does a great job of kind of discussing how especially those who are non-binary, how they, and again, Niall uses he, she pronouns, how to navigate the professional world and how truly difficult it is. You know, I don't want to sugarcoat Absolutely. it and say that it's a an easy thing based off of their experience that they told us. It was one of those things where I just was so captivated, yes. you know, and especially because it's a different world, basically, over in Australia. And so just seeing those basic differences on top of that added layer, but also seeing how connected some of our experiences really are kind of shows how the LGBTQ plus community does have a 
I guess a shared investment in in improving conditions and and just like the general state for all of us because I was so touched by how much he said he looked to what we were doing in the states and I was like yeah. what? <laughs> you know <laughs> what is happening here that's so great yeah. you know and I and it's again not that I'm knocking anything but it was a good reminder that you know progress is progress no matter how slow so yeah I'm Excited for all of you to hear Niall and his story and also touch on the fact that like Niall found us through our website and nominated yes. himself. So feel and free. All of you out there, you can nominate yourselves too. <laughs> yeah, it's so wonderful. Nominate yourself, nominate somebody you feel who's has a story worth sharing. And newsflash, we all have stories worth sharing. Yeah. So yes. Uh, you know, if you have a story worth sharing or if you have a specialty that's queer related that you want to share, we want to hear that, too. Yeah. So check out the website. It goes right to us at www.thequeerslp.com. And yeah, enjoy. Okay. Welcome to The Queer SLP. My name is Hector and my pronouns are he, him. And I'm Natalie. My pronouns are she, her. And... Our guest today is Niall, and my pronouns are he, her. Yay! Hi, Niall. Niall is joining us from a very special place. Could you tell everybody where you're from? Yes, so um, I'm from Australia. I'm currently based in Perth, which is on the west side in the state of Western Australia. We say WA, but we know people in America get mixed up and they all say, oh, you're in Washington? I'm like, no, no. Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yay. So our very first international proud professional episode. So really excited about that. Niall actually found us through our website and was able to use the nomination form. So if you haven't checked that out, feel free to do so. But yeah, so we're here to learn a little bit more about Niall, a little bit more about Australia, <laughs> and kind of get a feel for how things are going, not just, you know, for the field of speech language pathology, but also for the LGBTQ plus community. So, Nat, go ahead and ask our first question. Yeah. So, um, I guess a good place to start would be maybe just telling us what setting you work in and kind of what your work situation is. Yeah. So, it's actually changed recently in the last week. So, I was working for an NGO about a week ago and then finished up. And now I'm working for a healthcare provider in the disability space. So, I've just started that. So, it's just been one week already. And that role, I've kind of moved up a little bit now. So I'm a senior speech pathologist. I'll be pretty much developing the speech service from scratch. So lots of, kind of admin at the moment, um, meetings and all that type of stuff. And then I'll be slowly seeing, seeing clients, getting a feel for the, for the system and, and how they kind of work. And then that's kind of going to model, I guess, what, what the, how the service will develop. So I want to try and make sure it fits into what they're kind of already providing with OT, with physio, nursing, all that stuff. And then I also do private practice on the side as well, which I really, really enjoy because I get to almost pick what I do, um, get a bit more control. So it's almost the private practice is a bit more of a, a hobby, um, I guess, while the other job kind of pays the mortgage and the bills. But, I, you know, I, I enjoy it just as much. So kind of feel like there's pros and cons to private practice. There's pros and cons to working for an organization or, or a company. So um, that's where I am at the moment. So, yeah, been been lots of change in the last in the last month. So what 
types of populations do you typically work with? So my experience has predominantly been in disability. So here in Australia, we've got something that's called the National Disability Insurance Scheme or NDIS. Every Australian is eligible for it. You apply. It's like, you know, an insurance scheme where you kind of got to show that you kind of need the funding. If you get approval every year, you get funding approved for certain things, so for therapy, support work, for specialist accommodation, those types of things. So my area is obviously in the the therapy services section, so we get a lot of people coming through with therapy funds in the NDIS plan. So yeah, a lot of people with different disabilities, so it could be physical, it could be psychosocial, having to work with other professionals. This sounds a lot like universal healthcare. Is, what? is this, is this what yeah, that yeah, is? Yeah. <laughs> we also have that called Medicare. So that's what I do privately as well. But unfortunately for Allied Health, it's not well funded. So people can get a GP, so general practitioner management plan. I guess like a physician. Is that what you I guess call them over there? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you get five allied health sessions for the year and you get a rebate on that. And that's all allied health. So you might try to choose, you know, five sessions with your, with your speechy or for those who are elderly, they generally get the five so they can have podiatry where they, you know, they basically get their toenails cut five times a year. So they can't reach, <laughs> um, which, which we kind of get frustrated with because when you approach people who are much older, you go, oh, you know, you can get a rebate, you know, under Medicare. And they're like, no, 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 that's my podiatrist. He, he, he you know, I've got my five dietary sessions. So Medicare is not really great for allied health. Um, NGIS is kind of where the bulk of the, um, the services are. Very cool. So you said disability, is it mostly adults or do you work at pediatrics? I've covered everything. So okay. I've been a generalist um, through most of my career, except I guess the last two years, the NGO I was working for did adults only. So they were more like a ABI kind of specialist prior to NDIS coming in. And then NDIS has kind of forced everyone to open up. You're not, you can't kind of exclude people. So they've, they've had to accept everyone, but you can kind of do it based on age range. So adults is where I kind of enjoy the most. Like I can do pediatrics. I've been told I'm good at it, but I don't really necessarily enjoy enjoy pediatrics um not because of the clients i will be honest it's generally because of the parents <laughs> it's a different, different dynamic yeah yeah yes <laughs> yeah awesome so it sounds like change is afoot which is great and we embrace change but before you know you started in your current position we don't know what it's like to get into your job and your credentials. So could you tell us a little bit more about how a person becomes an SLP over in Australia? Yeah, so there's two pathways. So one is you do your Bachelor of whatever, I guess, the university calls it. Every university will name it differently. There's no kind of standard to it. So it could be like a Bachelor of Science and then your major is Communication Science. It could be a Bachelor of Speech Pathology. So it's a four-year Bachelor degree. Or you can do a graduate entry master's, um, which is what I did. So I had already done my Bachelor of Arts and did linguistics. And then, yeah, I was looking, you know, what do I do next? Something that kind of adds to that and so that you could do a master's. So I was like, I've already done three years. I'm not doing another four. So the two-year master's, it's pretty much the four years condensed into two. I'm glad that option is there. I I don't recommend it. (laughs) My cohort kind of jokes that you leave you graduate with two things. You graduate with your master's and a mental health disorder. Um, <laughs> yeah. So 
it's it, it was pretty stressful. Once you graduate, you can register with Speech Pathology Australia, which is our equivalent of ASHA, and there is apparently a mutual agreement between ASHA and SPA, so you can change over your registration if you move between the countries. I think we have to do like the praxis exam, which we don't have here. So there's no final exam. Once you've done your degree, everything's within the degree. So your exams are within the degree. If you've passed your degree, you qualify to register as a provisional for a year. And then after that, you become certified. There's no really ongoing, like there's the continuing professional development they have to do, getting so many points, but there's no kind of exam you have to sit there's no intern year and there's no graduate program you're pretty much straight into the profession wow interesting we were thinking that well at least i was thinking that your asha was going to be called asha but spa sounds (laughs) so much better (laughs) i love spa it sounds so much better than what i thought so you could go four years which i kid you not i bet you a lot of people in the states would love that because they'd feel more prepared or they get to learn more or whatever it may be. But it sounds like you could jump back and forth. So is there a lot of like competition to to get into these programs? Or are there even a lot of programs? Because over here in the States, it's pretty cutthroat, at least from my experience. Yeah. So I guess the education, tertiary education system here in Australia is quite different. So before there were capped placements because essentially Australia just had public universities so private wasn't really kind of a thing and they the government had placed caps so only so many people could get into those degree programs it was kind of a collaboration between you know the the job sector and the universities they kind of look at okay how many grads do you need okay well we don't want to overflow it and then quite some time ago the government took that cap off which then meant that universities could admit as many students as they wanted, obviously still have those requirements, the tertiary entrance ranking and, and those types of things from high school. But it really exploded and they just, if you can cram 200 people in, you know, into a lecture hall, well, then you can have 200 people in your cohort kind of thing. So there has been an explosion in speech pathology degrees. A lot of universities kind of started creating them. So Originally, there was just the bachelor here in WA, and then they made the master's, and then another university had their four-year bachelor as well. The bachelor, anyone can kind of get into as long as there's enough places and they meet the minimum standards, um, and generally most people do. The master's are the competitive ones, so I had to show what my grades were for my previous degree. I also had to have prerequisite units, so because I hadn't done human bio um, stats I had to do them as a like a summer program first and then yeah they they interview type stuff a state letter a statement of why you you know you deserve to be into that program the master program that I went into they only allowed I think maximum 30 but half of those were designated for Singaporean students because their masters only goes every second year so every kind of second year some of those who didn't originally get into their program would come to WA. So it was pretty cutthroat to get in the master's. Originally, I actually didn't get in. I was waitlisted. So I was like, okay, that's that's done. Found a job. Um, and then two weeks before semester started, they contacted me and said, oh, someone's decided not to go ahead. Would you like to do it? And I was like, shit, what do I do? Do I, do I go for this or do I stay in this job? Because I kind of was already working my way up and 
I asked my mum and I was just like, what do I do? And she's like, well, if you say no, will you ever get this chance again? And I said, no. And she's like, well, then do it. Like you applied for a reason. So I was really happy that I just got in. Yeah, so the masters are quite, they're they're quite cutthroat, but the bachelor is definitely much easier. That sounds very similar to my experience as that undergraduate was pretty easy to get into. And then grad school is difficult. I have a wonder, (laughs) why did you choose the profession that you chose? Why did you choose speech pathology? So I finished high school in a small regional town in WA called Bunbury. And that was back during when there was kind of a boom happening. So WA has a mining kind of economy. So we just dig stuff out of the ground. So not so much coal, but more like iron ore and other type of minerals. And that was a time where it was really booming. And back then our high school was kind of like, you lot, you know, we can see that you're going to go to uni. So do year 11 and 12. That was when year 11 and 12 was optional. And then there was a cohort where they were like, you know what, you're better off just dropping off at year 10, go get a trade, work in the mines, you'll be on 100K. You know, as a 16-year-old, you know, that's that seems like wow. And then there was the middle cohort, which I fit into, where they're like, we're not quite sure where you're going to go. So you better do high school, finish high school, just to keep your options open. So I did that. And when I finished, I was like, I still don't know what I want to do. I don't want to work up in the mines. Um, I didn't feel like I would fit in. And I was like, well, what the hell do I do with my life? So I was really interested in languages. So I thought, oh, maybe I can teach languages. So I did my diploma in teaching English as a second language, moved to China, was there for two years, so 2008, 2009, got to see a bit of China, um, learn a bit of the language. That was obviously when the GSC had hit um, and I was noticing that China was preferring people with you know, bachelor degrees, master's degrees. So lots of people from the US and Europe were starting to come to China and then me with my two-year diploma um, was kind of getting like pushed out. So I, I came back to Australia and was like, right, I'm going to do do my bachelor and then I can go back and compete with everyone. So I was like, okay, I'll do languages. So I did like an East Asian studies, kind of created my own own degree. So I did Chinese, Korean, um, Japanese, um, did an exchange program in China, got to go to North Korea, learn about politics and all that type of stuff. So Lots of kind of East Asian studies, a bit of politics. Really enjoyed it, was good at it, but it doesn't really give you like technical skills that you can use. So I was like, right, what do I, what do, I do with this? Um, and then by that stage, going back to China wasn't, I wanted to, but I had found someone, I wanted to stay in Australia. So I started applying for government jobs, kind of got through the process, but not quite to the end. And then... Yeah, I was like, shit, no job. What do I do? You know, typical story of a of an arts graduate. <laughs> I had done a bit of Auslan, which is Australian Sign Language, during my degree, um, and that really got me interested in in communication. My time in China got me interested in communication. I was kind of realizing some of my students weren't quite getting the sounds, and so I started getting interested in the phonology of Mandarin compared to compared to English. So. That communication side of stuff was kind of always just sitting there waiting to be explored. And then I kind of went through a rough kind of separation after after my graduation. And so came back to WA with family. And I was like, right, I've, I've got to do something. You know, I was didn't really have a job for for, for a while. 
And I was like, I either keep looking and spend all my savings or I go and, you know, go back to uni um, and, and upskill. And so I was like, well, what can I do with what I've got? So I thought, do I go into teaching or do I go, you know, into speech pathology? And I had a friend who did something similar um, over East. So I applied for both. And then, yeah, as I said, didn't didn't originally get in. I got a job and then um, got that call two weeks before semester and then had to scramble to get all my vaccinations and then, and then kind of, yeah, got into speech pathology. So kind of a long process, but I think it all worked. You know, they were all stepping stones to get to a point where it was like, you know, I could use my linguistics, my understanding of languages and just had to learn, I guess, like the medical SLP side of things. When I did phonology, I was like, yep, yeah, I know all this you know, language development, all this. And so I found that super easy. It was the medical stuff that also really interests me, like dysphagia. So, yeah. I think that's a really common thing in our field is a lot of people don't like directly go in knowing that they want to be an SLP. You know, we all like, oh, like, oh yeah, I can do that. Like that's related to some idea that I'm interested in. Usually it's like a, you know, linguistics or communication based. But I think I know for me, it's the same way. I, I, I went a roundabout way and then I was like, oh yeah, that kind of fits everything. What, what about you now? Was it the same thing? Yeah. Well, I mean, I got speech pathology from like an aptitude test or like a what you'd be good at test that they give you in high school. I want to yeah. be an opera singer. So <laughs> that didn't work out. Um, <laughs> your journey sounds so interesting. Like it, it almost sounds like the people that you worked with teaching English sort of inspired you to um, learn more about communication and their struggles with the phonology and the phonology of English is so weird, just inspired you to become a speech pathologist. I just love that journey to the profession. I think that's cool. Um, oh, yeah. I and, bet you your multicultural <laughs> evals are like spot on because yeah. <laughs> you were immersed in it. Like there was no, yeah. no way to actually like, you know, you can't fake that experience. So you actually understand cultural differences, which is great. So, yeah. Yeah. And I found it really interesting, like just the concept of being illiterate, like all over again. So like when I went there, I could not read or write. You know, I couldn't communicate with the world around me and just it almost felt like I had a communication kind of disability. I could speak, I could read and write, but not in a way that anyone else could understand me. So I was in more of a second tier city and this is just before the Olympics started in 2008. So you know, English wasn't really that common in second tier cities and onwards, you know, Beijing, Shanghai, sure, but um, I was in Wuhan the first time and in Taiwan in, in the north the second time and just to see you know, a white man there, you know, it was like everyone would be like, whoa. And, and um, so for me, it was, it was really nice to just embrace having to learn how to read and write again, learning how to talk again and, you know, picking up things just through communication. And I found like the way that they responded was really, really nice. Like they weren't frustrated. Like they would try and work out strategies and it's interesting with the, how like different cultures have strategies to help break down those communication barriers. So because of all the dialects in China, one way of communicating numbers, they've got a way of showing numbers on, on the hand. So they've got a really specific things. And so I learned how to do the numbers on the hand. So if I ever needed to go somewhere and purchase something, know what the price was, how many I needed, they would, they would use you know, like basically a sign language for numbers, which I found really, really interesting. So I think there's a lot that we can learn from different cultures in how they manage those things because 
yeah, in countries where there are multiple dialects, multiple languages, I think they actually do so much better at those communication barriers. And I think communication disability is, you know, acknowledged and, and, and embraced and they work with it quite well. While I feel like here in Australia, it's completely different. It's kind of like, you know, everyone speaks English and then if you can't, everyone gets frustrated and they're like, and I think oh, it's same in, same in the States, same in the States. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about your journey toward discovery and then go further into like what it's like to be an SLP who identifies within our community as well. Yeah, it's been an incredible long journey. I didn't think at the age of 30, I'd be going through it uh, kind of all over again. So growing up, I kind of, I was, I just felt me, you know, I, I didn't really get gender norms. So I'd have friends of any gender. I'd play with any toys that interested me. So someone had dolls, like, yeah, I'll, I'll get involved with that. That seems like fun. And I think having my parents that I, that I have really kind of helped me be me. So for my parents, you know, they they both worked when they needed to. If one had to stay home and, and look after us and do the cooking, then one of them would. Like I didn't feel mum and dad ever had these gender norms. So there was definitely a time where mum was kind of the main worker and dad was studying. And so he was at home, he's, you know, he was doing his study and then he was making sure we were at school, making sure that, you know, dinner was ready, all those types of things while mum was out working. So for me, it was really nice to see how they could swap those roles. And it just didn't seem odd. It was kind of normalised. It was okay. But from a, like a sexual attraction perspective, I kind of grew up knowing that like, yeah, I'm attracted to kind of, you know, the, the, the boys in my class, like my classmates, like, and it was tough because growing up, I, I not within my family, but just at school and in the community, I, I would hear these things that were pretty kind of terrible. And so it made me kind of fear, you know, what does that make me? So for me, it was people would say, you know, gay people should be shot, they're pedophiles, you know, all, all this really, really horrendous stuff. And so for me, it was like, well, I, I can't be gay because being gay is like, that's a bad person. I'm not a bad person. So I could never be gay. So it was, it was a real struggle to understand my sexuality because it was like, I knew my attraction, but I didn't consider that being gay because it was almost, gay was associated with almost like this personality trait. And it was such a struggle because I was worried that if someone would find out about my attraction, they would assume that I'm this evil person. It was really tough. Like I had this internal struggle, this internal fear and it got kind of worse and worse up into my teen years. It was like, how do you how do you talk to people? How do you explore your sexuality and, and know all those things when you don't know who to trust? So, yeah, I, I kind of turned to the internet and I, I guess I'm glad that I was very savvy. I definitely came across things where I had older people approach me, you know, offer me things like $1,000 just to visit. And I was, I guess, strong enough to, you know, and, and aware enough to not kind of give in to those things um, and be you know, manipulated. And I, I think that's like a concern for me is that with what I went through, um, for those who don't feel like they can open up to family and friends, the internet's the only place they can turn to and the internet's not necessarily a safe place to turn to either. That was an interesting part of high school, but by year 11 and 12, I kind of decided to own it one day I was like, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to come out. I'm just going to be me. 
I had collected like Zac Efron posters and all these things. And I was like, I'm going to put a few on my wall in my bedroom. And if anyone asks, I'm just going to go, yeah, I, I want them there. That's why they're there. End of story. So one day I did that. I'm going, I'm going to do it tomorrow. And I did it. And then I think a few days later, um, one of my brothers walked in um, to ask me about something and he noticed and he was like, oh, why do you have like a shirtless pic of Zac Efron on, on, on your wall? And I was like, well, I'm gay. And he was like, oh, okay, no worries. And then walked out and I was kind of like, I don't know, it felt nice. Like I wasn't kind of really questioned about it. It was just accepted. And then a few days later, um, my brothers were in the living room and mum was in the kitchen and I walked out and I don't know how it came up. But then my brother was like, oh, mum, do you know Niles gay? She's like, what? He's like, yeah, yeah, he's gay. Like go into his room. Like he's got like, you know, pictures of Zac Efron on his wall. And she's like, oh, okay. And this makes sense. <laughs> not, yeah, nothing more was said. Um, and then I thought, oh, I should probably like, you know, clear the air kind of thing. So I asked mum and dad to sit down with me and I was like, you know, this isn't me coming out, this is me just letting you know the situation so then it's not awkward. At that time I thought I was bisexual because I had girlfriends who I, were, I was romantically attracted to, not, not sexually, but I didn't understand the difference between those two types of attractions. So I just assumed oh, I must be bi. So I told my parents and they were kind of, you know, nicely kind of like, look, we... We thought maybe you were. We didn't want to ask. We didn't want to assume, you know, because some people can be flamboyant and, and not be gay and that's okay. So, yeah, there was kind of like no drama within my immediate family. After high school, that's when I was really kind of embracing who I was and doing some gender exploration without really realising that's what I was doing. I just thought that was exploring my sexuality, you know, what's my sexuality? And when I came back from China, I had long hair by that stage. I had bought all these handbags over there and I kind of really committed to pretty much living living as a woman. Um, and most people actually don't know this about me because um, most people only know me since 2014 when I came back to WA. So I was pretty much just female clothes, long hair. I had, had nails that were painted. You know, they weren't long or anything. And I was just loving life. And it was interesting because where I was was in regional New South Wales and it was a historically like a coal mining and steel mill town with not a lot of cultural diversity. And I think everyone kind of looked at me really, really weird, but I was very comfortable with who I was at that stage. And I remember first starting uni and just people looking at me, trying to make sense because, you know, I grow out, you know, my facial hair but I've got this long hair and, you know, I was, I was, I was presenting as, as, as a woman. I, I had a motorbike at the time and I think that's why people kind of would like look twice because they'd see, you know, with the helmet on, no one would know. And I'd rock up with these like high heels on my, on, on my motorbike, um, high heel boots. And then I'd take off my helmet, you know, let my hair down, but they're seeing like this stubble, this, this beard. <laughs> and I was happy with that. And I was really trying to work out like, you know, am I, am I a man or am I a trans woman? Like, what, like, what am I? Like, what do I want? And, you know, just at that time of just knowing the binary, I had to be one or the other. Um, and it was really confusing. So I was like, like, I really like my presentation, but I also really like my body the way it is. And for me, it was like, I need something in between, but it didn't sound like that ever existed. 
And that was then kind of, I was, I guess I was really, really close and it was all put on hold when I got into um, a long-term relationship. And that person had met me, you know, female presenting, but over the years it became quite mentally abusive and I was told not to dress that way. I cut my hair. I couldn't leave the house without presenting in a particular way. It was a really tough time. It was a relationship that I did manage to, to leave and that was a part of the reason of coming back to WA and then getting, you know, getting into speech pathology. And it wasn't until, I guess, late last year that I had some time to slow down, think about stuff and realise that that trauma had still been sitting there. Like that confidence that I had back when I first started uni was like completely ripped from me. And then that kind of made me realise, like, yeah, I want to embrace that part of me again because that's, that's me. And then getting into trans and gender diverse voice, I started learning more about gender, um, not just sexuality, but, you know, gender and then non-binary. And, and to begin with, I was like, no, no, that's, that's not me. And then it wasn't until I went to sign up with OzPath, which is the Australian version of the, like, is it US Path? Nix's WA path and stuff. Yep, yep. Um, and, and they asked for the gender and that's when it actually hit me when I went to register. I was like, I don't feel comfortable putting down male. So I've never felt male and I know I'm not a trans woman. And then I saw non-binary and I just sat there and I kind of just cried. So I kind of like found out like that's finally who I am. And like it's a good feeling, like it's 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 yeah. it's a happiness to finally get there, you know. And it's kind of like sometimes it does take that long to discover who you are. Like sometimes you just need to pick up from where you left off. So for me, it's 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 been a year of working through that trauma, getting that confidence back. You know, not not giving a shit about what people think when I when I go into the store and to finally kind of be me again and to know that, you know, I can exist outside of binary, that I don't have to be either, I can be who I am and I can just finally explore my gender expression and, and have the gender expression that I've always wanted. So it's, it's been a long journey, <laughs> lots of trauma, but I feel like I'm there and I definitely feel like I have that confidence. You know, I told my work, my previous workplace, and I was like, look, you know, I'm trans non-binary and said, you know, in terms of how this is going to impact stuff, like we get clients who request for people who are male presenting. And I said, and I think we need to unpack that more because some of them are after a blokey Aussie guy and that's what they're after. They might not get that with me, you know, so having that discussion with my employer about, you know, what do people want when they ask for a male? Is it because that person might have been a sex offender so we do get those types of clients and if that's the case then yes they would be safer with me because they're not going to be attracted to me and I'm, I'll make sure that because I'm quite comfortable with presenting as male those days you know I'll, I'll present as male um, and not present as female on those days so to have that kind of conversation in my employer be like yep yeah, like whatever we can do to support you felt really great like having my colleagues support me and even with like my new employer now, um, during the interview, it felt really nice that they saw in my LinkedIn profile that I had my pronouns. And then they just asked, they said, oh, 
I see that your pronouns are he, she, like I'd like to ask about that, you know, what one should I use? Um, and it just felt nice to be validated um, and to be accepted and have that as, as part of that interview process of, yeah, what's your name, what's your pronouns? And, yeah, so I feel really happy to be where I am now, to know my gender, to know my sexuality. Like there's still work to be done, <laughs> but I feel like mentally I'm there and, and, I'm, and I'm just all about money now um, and, and purchasing the things that I need. <laughs> I love that. Well, thank you is the first thing I want to say for just all of that. What a wonderful, wonderful, powerful story you shared with us. I did want to clarify for those of you that don't know, because you brought up OzPath and many of our listeners probably don't know what WPATH is, but WPATH is a nonprofit organization. It stands for World Professional Association for Transgender Health. And so it connects providers from all areas of healthcare for the transgender community. There is one in the States. It sounds like there's one in Australia and there's one in a lot of different countries. So it's a wonderful resource if you haven't heard of it already to go check out. Your journey is just so inspiring. And, you know, as a trauma survivor myself, I just can really identify with how that can set you back. And the strength that it took for you to overcome it is just amazing. And I just am so grateful that you shared it with us because it takes a lot of strength to talk about trauma and about abuse. Thank you so much. So it it sounds like depending on the day you're present as male or as female, how does that work with your patients? Like, do they know that about you? You know, how do they respond to that? Is there confusion or not knowing the culture of Western Australia? I'm just wondering sort of how that, how your experience is with that. Yeah, so um, at the moment I do, I do kind of separate, I guess, the two settings. So I've got my main employer and then I've got the private practice. So the private practice is where I present more feminine and, you know, some, some days I won't shave because I am lazy. <laughs> and a lot of the clients that I see privately are those who are trans and gender diverse. So I feel more comfortable in presenting that way and I also feel that it also helps them feel comfortable in presenting that way as well so I'm kind of modeling that it's okay and you know what that's right if you miss a day of shaving that's okay like you know I feel like I can show that you know you don't have to fit a particular kind of norm you know like you know that's right some days people don't wash their hair some days people forget to put on makeup some days we forget to, you know, shave our facial hair like that. That's okay. So I feel, you know, that's an area where I feel very comfortable in presenting how I feel on the day. In terms of my main employer, I'm very aware, I guess, culturally, and it's still something I'd like to discover more and talk to other people about because on the one hand, I, I understand that it can be perceived as almost putting yourself in the closet, but some of the clients we have, I almost feel like it's a part of cultural competency, like to build that rapport with a particular client. I feel like it is easier to present in a particular way. And it's not, it's still authentic for me to present that way. Like I'm definitely doing it in a way that's comfortable for me, but I will definitely think about what I'm wearing. And it's not necessarily from a gender perspective, but also from a professional perspective. Like I refuse to wear uniform with some clients and I will tell that to my employer because I go, having grown up 
I guess, within that lower socioeconomic background, I understand what it's like to have someone who's in this professional uniform in front of you. It can be quite confronting. You can feel like you're less than them and I don't want my clients to feel less. I like to be able to just go in in a T-shirt and and some pants and show that I'm not here to judge you, whether on how you're dressed, how you present, how, how your home is. So for me, I kind of really adapt my clothing to, to the clients from a professional standpoint as well, not just from a gender presentation. So I'm still working that out because I guess it, yeah, it would be nice to be female presenting on some days that I really feel that I need to be. But I also understand that it just might make the session harder with the client. So I'm still trying to work out that, you know, what's culturally appropriate while also being authentic to me. I think that's such a great point that, a lot of our listeners would identify with is, again, we always talk about this like professionalism (laughs) and how the queer identity works within that and how we try really hard to reclaim the word professional to to symbolize our actual skill set rather than what our presentation is. And so, and similar to, to body hair, you know, the freedom to express body hair, not just for cisgendered males but for cisgendered females too you know what is what does body hair mean you know like and why does it have to mean anything you know like that's a a conversation that is very much something that is not discussed in the professional world so I, I love that you are challenging that you spoke a little bit about like that requiring cultural competency in Australia it doesn't have to be specifically western Australia but is there continuing ed specific to the LGBTQ community available? I know it's something that's becoming more and more prevalent here, at least in the States. A big part of that is probably due to some of our very active listeners uh, who who hold seminars for themselves. But what's it like over there? Is there a lot of opportunities to learn more about, you know, working with the LGBTQ community or, or no? Yeah, so there's lots of organizations here. I guess it's not necessarily called, it's not seen as cultural competency. It's almost like, you know, awareness and, and, and how to work with people who are LGBTQIA+. But I feel like a lot of that training that is mainstream is very corporate. So you usually get your big businesses who will hire or, or um, book in those types of things, almost from a HR perspective, from an employee perspective, making sure that there's no discrimination amongst staff. It's kind of more about staff relation. That's how it appears to me. There is stuff for practitioners. I think it's Headspace, which is a mental health organisation. They have some uh, mental health modules for GPs and other practitioners. And they've got one that's like a youth mental health module. And, and part of that is, is that type of culturally, you know, cultural competency. So how do you talk with your, with your patients about you know, sexuality with gender, how do you approach it? How do you not make microaggressions? When I had done it, um, it didn't quite get into, I guess, pronouns and stuff. I think it was more of a, an overview of what most people would normally kind of, you know, the, the, the main mistakes, I guess, people make in, in terms of those, those interactions, especially around sexual health. I think in the sexual health space, it's de- you know, in the mental health space, there's definitely internal training that's going on. But for clinicians who want to know about that, it's definitely not as readily available or kind of really open and out there. So for me, wanting to know more about it, I've got a 
amazing bookstore down the road from me that's um, an inclusive bookstore, welcomes everyone and makes sure that it is a safe environment. And I get all my books from from them. So a lot of the stuff is from, from the US. I've kind of had to go to America for a lot of training. It just seems really, really hard here in Australia. So while things exist in Australia, it's almost like you need to be within that group, within that circle to get access. But yeah, I guess if you're a speechy who wants to, you know, be culturally competent with, with your clients, there's no kind of easy kind of, oh yeah, this is who I go to. And, and Latrobe has been making a program, they're, they're making it a professional development course on the Speech Pathology Australia website. So things are happening behind the scenes, but I still feel like we're kind of in the infancy in Australia in, term, in terms of that stuff making sure that's, you know, accessible to all health professionals and known that it's actually necessary, like you need it. I think people assume, well, my client isn't trans or I'm not doing trans voice, so I don't need to know what we're finding here. And the Perth Children's Hospital here in WA, they've noticed that a lot of the people coming through their gender service have autism. And for me, it's kind of like if you work in the disability space, if you're working with autistic people, and I say that because I use the the identity first language, you need to know because chances are your client may be gender diverse. And I've had lots of clients come through that originally weren't thinking about that. And by just having the space that I've had privately, having those books available, they'll come back in a couple of months and they're like, "I'm, I'm questioning my gender, I'm questioning my sexuality. So I feel like, you know, even if you don't feel like you have those clients, like you actually do and you need to be culturally confident because we almost need to be providing environment for them to feel safe and actually realise that almost that light bulb moment for them of, oh, this is, this is a thing I've never thought about this before. Oh, maybe this is my identity. There's a lot of work I think that, that needs to be done and especially with NDIS, you know, there's lots of speeches now it will be, I guess, the main employer will be disability services in Australia because of the funding. I think it will need to be core um, just because of that overlap. And there's other figures coming out now where people with disability are also more likely to be sexually and gender diverse as well. So for me, it's just so important. Sounds like there's room for growth. I know for us, at least with ASHA, it's written in our code of ethics that we are able to provide services for people that are in the trans community. And so I think that's a big reason why there's a huge emphasis here, at least a growing emphasis. Do you have like a code of ethics <laughs> in spot that, that kind of like details that? Or am I just <laughs> throwing things out? Yeah, so we, we do have a code of ethics. I think it's more clear in our new professional standards. So cultural competency has always been you know, aligned in our professional standards, but I don't really think it's been that well enforced. It's kind of like a, yeah, you should be culturally competent with your clients, but it's like, well, what does that mean to be culturally competent? How are we making sure people are culturally competent? Where is this training, you know, in terms of, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultural competency is really difficult in Australia because there are many nations within Australia, there's this initial assumption that Aboriginal is just this one thing, but they've got different languages, different cultural stuff. You can't just say, oh, Aboriginal people don't make eye contact. Well, maybe some cultures, but maybe others, that's okay, depending on the setting. For me too, cultural competency should also be a matter of 
you know, your socioeconomic uh, economic status. Like, where's the cultural competency there? I've seen OTs look at cooking, for example, with a client that I've had, and they come from a world where when you cook, you know, for example, spaghetti bolognese, you buy the basil, you buy the oregano, you get the um, you get you know, the beef, you make your own pasta, like so many ingredients, and it probably costs them $50 to make. And then my client just looked at me like, I can't afford that. Like, and like, why are there so many ingredients? And to me, having grown up that way, I was like, yeah, three ingredients, uh, a jar of dolmio, um, pasta, that's a dollar, and some, some mints and just stick it all together, bam, done. And like the, just that concept, like I had to go to the OT and say like, this is what spaghetti bolognese is for them, like because of what they can afford, because of how they grew up in cooking that meal. And to them, their mind was blown, like even the concept of this person having baked beans on toast for dinner was like, what? People have that for dinner? So I, I see it a lot where that cultural competency doesn't, doesn't even occur for people depending on their background from a, you know, how, how you grew up. And I feel like that's just as important as like, that's just as cultural as ethnic background, as your gender, as your sexuality, like there's so much to cultural competency that we're just not getting. Yeah, I mean, it, I think that that's something that some of us are starting to become aware of. I think that that's one thing that I'm starting to learn to coming from an urban setting. Now I'm in a rural setting and learning kind of even the culture of a rural community versus a culture of an urban community is also very different. You know, the, the first thing that comes to mind for me is like, kids out here know a lot more about farms than kids that I knew when I worked in Seattle. They know about tractors and gardening and farm animals. And like, you know, that's something that you need to know, you know, when you think about the context of their lives, you know, a lot of the kids that I work with are living on farms or near farms. And I feel like we're starting to get to that point where people are realizing that something like socioeconomic status or where you live is, is part of that cultural competency. I am curious because I know Asha likes to do a census every like decade. Um, <laughs> has the spa have one too? And what is the makeup for SLPs over there? Because I mean, we know just based off statistics that it's a female dominated and predominantly white industry. What's it like over there? I know for us over here, we really at least just recently with what has gone on in the United States as far as like tackling racism in our society. Like there's a big push for making sure that we're very much aware of where our history is, but also like how conscious we are of the students and the clients that we, you know, also treat. So what's it like over in Australia? Yeah, um, so I actually made an Instagram post about this. So the last kind of information that we have is from 2011. And we know that back then there was 97.5% uh, were female, 2.5% male. There's nothing beyond the, that binary. And then in terms of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, 0.2% of species um, identified, which is essentially nothing. I think it was essentially one or two people when you when you think about the profession numbers. So there's a lot of work to do. I've messaged Spa about having 
because they do get those figures, I guess, every year when you register. So you, you fill in your details and you can change your details. And the only options at the moment are a binary option. I did let them know. To be fair, I think it only got to their front desk. So I don't know if this is representative of the organisation itself, but I kind of said, hey, you've only got binary options. You've only got male, female. Um, I'm non-binary. I don't have that option. You need to be more inclusive. Um, look, and if they came back and said, hey, look, our system doesn't allow that at the moment, but yes, thank you for addressing that. I would have been fine, but the person actually came back to me and was like, no, 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 we're inclusive. All options are there. Even though I literally said, like, I don't fit male or female and they're literally the two options. And so I went back and I was like, um, no, but also like I don't use Mr. or, or gender-specific um, honorifics, I use MX. And then again came back and said, um, I've manually changed your details to MX and I've selected your gender as none. Hmm. Huh? <laughs> and I was just like, okay, like just obviously still not listening. And I was just really frustrated and I like I was like, what do I do? So I so I did that post. Um, I tagged Spar in it as well and they did, you know, like it because I said, you know, there's more to the profession than just attracting men. And then I said, you know, we, we, we do need trans people. We do need gender diverse people. We also need people with other ethnicities um, because just like, I guess, the US, it's predominantly white girl and even, you know, going back to that socioeconomic status, I, I do feel that a lot of the people I studied with came from the city. They came from, you know, they might not feel like they were in a well-off suburb, but a lot of them didn't have exposure to the stuff that I was exposed to um, in other towns. And I think it's really important because, you know, when you see your client, you don't want a speechy to kind of be like, oh, my God, I couldn't believe the state of their house. Like, for me, like, like that's normal for some people but for them they're used to like display home type type cleanliness so for me yeah there's 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 a lot of there's a lot of data we need to capture about what makes speech pathology first because I'm surely I'm not the only non-binary speechy out there um has to be someone else but we don't know so I think the first part is definitely for SPA to work out how we actually going to collect this data properly but then also, what are we going to do to change this? Like people always, you know, they, they would say to me, oh, it's so great to see a male in the profession. We need more, we need more men, we need more men. But like, do we, like, do we actually need more white men? Like, like it'd be great to get people from other, <laughs> yeah, just more diversity in general. Like, why do we just need white men? Right. <laughs> and then when I was telling people, because I used to be known as the male speech pathologist, and then I changed it to the NBSP. People were actually sad because they were like, oh, but like the male speech, he sounds really cool. Like we need men. And I'm like, we also need non-binary people. Like, can you be happy that we've actually got a non-binary speechy? Like for them, it was a loss rather than a gain of something else. Like, and I feel like that's where the fixation is. It's we need men and that's it. Full stop. Right. I was just, when when you said that, I was like, man. I need to change mine because my my handle on Instagram is male SLP. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Let me not be part to... of that conversation. <laughs> I mean, you, but you can be a male SLP. I think the, the the idea is that we need all kinds of SLPs. Right. Absolutely. You know, yeah. we 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 need to move away from the majority white female cis 
sort of thing. And I'm talking as a white female cis speech pathologist. But I mean, we we need to diversify, right? Well, especially when it comes Absolutely. to gender gender affirming voice therapy. We we oh yeah we need transgender SLPs. We need the same way we need the that we need people of color to be SLPs. You know, our clients need to see themselves in the practitioners that provide our services. It sounds like there's a lot of room for growth. <laughs> um, there's across, always room. There's always room. So I guess my next question would be like, if you had to think about what your hopes are for the future when it comes to our field, mm. you know, tell us a little bit about that and we'll, we'll, we'll jump into some of that. I'd really love to see a lot more action from our profession rather than almost like just this awareness of we exist. I'd like to see more cultural training, more cultural diversity, and almost just some more standards. Like, as, as I explained, so you do your degree and that's the benchmark. Like, once you're in, as long as you're doing some professional activity, it's enough to maintain your status. But, you know, just because you've been doing something for 10 years, like, is that the right way? Like, I'm loving the stuff that's coming from social media, from from American SLPs, you know, about dysphagia, you know, questioning why aren't you doing fees or why aren't you doing, you know, swallow studies, um, you know, instrumental stuff, you know, why are you doing this or why aren't you doing this, you know, getting people to think about that stuff. Like there's really no standard except for what an organisation here in Australia creates. So if you work at a hospital, your hospital speech department will set the standard. So this is what we expect you to be able to do. And that will be different from hospital to hospital. Like if you're tracky competent, you're only tracky competent for that hospital. SPA doesn't get involved in what tracky competency looks like. They say we do entry level, we don't do any further. If you want to advance your skills, it's up to your, your employer to decide what that should look like. And I find it's created a lot of siloing of skills and, and, and a breakup of species. And it has created this kind of, you know, hospital species are seen as much better, much better trained. And the community species, you know, are, to put it bluntly, peasants. And, you know, we're, we, we don't know what we're doing. But maybe we don't know what we're doing because we're not getting access because of the gatekeeping that's happening from hospitals. And hospital, tertiary hospitals are designed to also upskill and train. That's a part of what they are. They're not just seeing clients. They're actually learning institutions as well. So it has created this kind of divide that no one will talk about. Um, I do quite freely and my friends love it. <laughs> um, they think I'm a shit stirrer. Um, but for <laughs> me, it's, we, need, we need to talk about this because if we don't talk about it, how will our profession ever move forward? There's this feeling of don't rock the boat because it is so small. If you annoy the wrong people, then you, you're not going to get far. So, you know, everyone will say it behind closed doors, one-on-one, -on -one, get everyone in the same room and no one's got an issue. That is so, one, it's it's very much here. Um, I don't know, Nat, when you're a program, but they called med SLPs like white coat SLPs. And I remember hearing that term and going, what? Because they got paid better and they were medical, so they were more established. 
or, you know, like, and so because they dealt more with uh, more hard sciences than the soft sciences uh, because of dysphagia. So it is a very interesting, like, divide that exists within our field. You've got the med and you've got the the school and then you've also got academia, right? Right. The researchers. And and the researchers are in another silo. It just is very isolating. And in a profession where we're supposed to be collaborating, it can be difficult to do that when there's an attitude of like one is better than the other. And yeah, my grad, my grad program didn't make that kind of distinction. They were very good about not, not going there. But when I got into the profession and started working, you know, I started off in medical and then moved to educational and there is that attitude. And it, it makes me sad that it's the same in Australia. Also, you don't require 30 clock hours every three years to maintain your licensure. Is that not a thing in, in spa? Yeah. So the way our registration works here, um, there's like what we call APRA. So I think it's called the Australian Health Regulatory something or other. I can't remember. <laughs> but basically, if you're, a, if you're a nurse, if you're in medicine, you've got to be registered under this national board. And speech pathology wasn't the government decided not to register us under that national system because apparently we can't kill people. Oh, okay. Upgrade that diet real quick and we'll see who dies from aspiration. Because, um, you know, we just do stuttering in kids. Like, how can you harm a child, right? Um, Gosh. Yeah, so that, that's a whole other issue that's being fought behind closed doors. Um, so I could, I could argue that not being able to communicate could kill you, but right. Oh, absolutely. Even mental health, you know, there's, there's right. We can do that's damaging, you know, voice, you know, right. Um, Yes. Separate issue. Um, (laughs) self, self regulation with spa. So it is voluntary to register. It's not a, like things like, you know, you can't call yourself a psychologist here in Australia because it's a registered thing. If you call yourself a psychologist, you can go to jail for that. But you could call yourself a speech pathologist and not technically have the training. So there's no protection of it. <gasps> wow. That was an audible yeah. intake of breath because... Um, Vocal abuse. Well, right, I know. And for a very long time, people weren't registered. Like even the hospital, hospital speeches wouldn't register because they didn't see the point. They were like, well, there's actual no requirement. They didn't see the worth. And it really hasn't been since you know, the NDIS came through that's actually required you to be registered with something. So it says, you know, if you're not registered with APRA, then it has to be a professional body that's recognised as the peak body. So to work under basically receiving government funds, you have to be registered with SPA in order to get your Medicare, regist- you know, Medicare number, private health insurance number, and to be able to receive NDIS funding. So it has kind of made people get registered now and it has become a lot better, the registration process. You do need so many hours in a, in a three-year time frame and then every year I think it's 20 continuing professional development points. So there's that um, and you submit it each year, but it only gets audited every, every now and then. Kind of like taxes, you know, you do your tax, maybe they'll look into it, maybe they won't. So that's how it currently is at, at the moment. But yeah, not everyone is registered if they're not receiving government funds. So that is so practice. Yeah. It's so good to know that capitalism rules the world everywhere <laughs> because getting paid 
is the only way people will <laughs> do the licensure. If they couldn't yeah, get paid, yeah, they wouldn't yeah. do it. They don't see the yeah. value. But yeah. I that I mean, I don't know anybody who I mean, some people don't have their C's, but I don't know if they're calling themselves SLPs at that point. Are they? <laughs> Natalie in the United States, do you know anybody I, like that? Um, I, I have. One thing that I learned it, coming to a different state in the U.S., like there are people in New York State called teachers of the speech and hearing handicapped. And they don't necessarily have, you know, they don't have their C's. Oh. Um, you know, they do have some kind of speech and language training and in order to do documentation, they have to have a speech pathologist as their supervisor who supervises their documentation and makes sure, but they're not speech pathologists with ASHA. Right. Um, so I think it depends on the state you're in, what the rules are. Wow. Mind is blown. It was new. It was new to me. I moving to a, a new state was, was interesting. You think you know something. <laughs> <laughs> then you know and nothing then, at all. <laughs> the more you know. <laughs> but anyway. Right. On that note, Nat, go ahead and ask our, our main our question. Final question. Yes, our, our favorite, favorite final question. Yes. Well, um, Neil, what does being a proud professional mean to you? I always feel like it comes back to, I guess, not just within speech pathology. For me, it's kind of being comfortable with who you are and and feeling accepted and being able to do your work as you are really and I felt like I've always been able to do that but there's a part of me that wonders whether it's because I'm male presenting that I'm able to be like that like I do feel speech pathology in Australia still has those kind of systemic patriarchal type stuff happening so despite it being highly kind of feminized, I really don't feel like there's feminism in the profession. You know, I still see, you know, like maternity leave isn't, isn't standard in our profession, which you'd expect, you know, I guess people assume, you know, it's dominated by men. That's the reason why these things aren't there. And once we get that, you know, gender equity, you know, things will balance out, but it's like, there's no man, you know, we're a board of men holding the profession back like it's in the hands of the women and it's still not there so I and that's for me it's like that's where that cultural competency and that diversity comes in like those barriers are there we've essentially still got those barriers from other workplaces and using that and then kind of wondering why we're harming ourselves and it's like but we're using the same tools that we use to oppress everyone like stop using those tools so for me, I feel like I'm I'm able to because that system benefits me as a male presenting person, and I ha- and I am outspoken, and I'm allowed to be outspoken. But I see so many other people, and I think that's where that don't rock the boat, like I said before, comes from. If if you're female presenting, like you're seen as arrogant, you're seen as bitchy, you're not seen as well. I'm seen as assertive, you know, and that's a great idea, Niall. But someone else says it and, yeah, it's, oh, well, you know, that person needs to work on their professionalism. So I feel like I can be proud, I can be me, but I think the profession allows me to be me. Sounds like you went through a process, I mean, to to get to being a proud professional, which is awesome. But just thinking about things and wrapping up, it's been so great having you 
on our show as our first international SLP. We, we, you know, we couldn't have had any, anyone better. So thank you again for being on our show. Can you tell our listeners where they can find you? I know your Instagram tag has changed. So <laughs> let us yes. know where they can find you. So on Instagram, I am at the.nbsp. And then I have a website, which is www.thenbsp.com.au. Um, and that has a little bit about me. People get in touch with me. Awesome. Thank you for coming and sharing your experience as an SLP. Yeah. Thank you for having me, especially with the time difference between, between all of us. Oh, yeah. By oh, the way, yeah. everybody, it's Sunday where Niall is, and it's Saturday night for Natalie, like late Saturday night. Yes. And then, so, you know, 8 p.m. for me. But all righty. So thanks again. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Queer SLP. Want to be featured on our Instagram page or be on the show? Check us out at thequeerslp.com for more information. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at The Queer SLP. If you enjoyed listening, be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast and share it with your friends, family, and colleagues. Bye! Bye.